This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. CanDo is navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Katie Balls and we have Sam Lowe back with us, who's a partner at Flint. So he's here to talk about the Northern Ireland Protocol. Katie, Boris Johnson's broken his silence. What's he got to say? So Boris Johnson had a pre-planned speech today at the Global Soft Power Summit and this is taking place in Westminster. And it was a long speech and I think it's probably... I think this is his first speech in the UK that he's given since he left office, which can be accessed, is, you know, it's not behind closed doors. And it was a defence, I think, in part of his premiership. He talked about how he respected the rule of law and living in a free country. He didn't mind that involved people insulting him when he walked down the street. And he respected the police, but he said to this day, he didn't quite understand the rationale that had left him a fixed penalty notice. Um, but I think everyone watching that was waiting to see what is he going to say on Rishi Sunak's Brexit deal. And that did come. The Prime Minister said that he would find it very difficult to vote for it. He had mixed feelings about the deal. He said the original protocol, which of course he asked every MP to vote for and did so, um, was all his fault. His fault, that is, not Sunak's. But then he went to question quite confrontationally Rishi Sunak's deal, saying he didn't think it was all it claimed to be. It was not the UK taking back control. He said, I'm conscious I'm not going to be thanked for saying this. But he said, "That's be, we must be clear about what is really going on here. I think we can hear a clip now of what he said. Uh, I'm going to find it very difficult to vote for something myself, because uh, something like this myself, because I believed that we should have done something different. Uh, no matter how much plaster came off the ceiling in Brussels. And I hope that it will work. And I also hope that if it doesn't work, we will have the guts to deploy that bill again. So I think that comment there, which is, this is the EU graciously unbending to allow us to do what we want to do in our own country, not by our laws, but by theirs, shows you where he, he sits on the issue. But yet, in that criticism of the deal, he also said that he understood that a lot of people just want to get this done for it to be over. Um, So there was an acknowledgement, I think, that his is perhaps a minority view when it comes to the Tory party. What does it mean in terms of what Boris Johnson is going to do next? This isn't the type of opposition we saw of Theresa May's Chequers deal. That was much more, everyone must stop it, chuck Chequers marches, you know, events at Tory conference, see if you get more people in a room than Theresa May. But it also is very far from friendly or helpful. It's somewhere between the two. And I think that's probably a combination of factors but I wonder if it's part influenced by the fact that at least right now the mood in the Tory party is not something where anyone is expecting a large rebellion yes number 10 is expecting a rebellion but it feels it's much more a few members of the European research group and perhaps Boris Johnson and his supporters I think there's still a question because there's enough leeway in those comments as to yes you can't support it but are you going to vote against it or will you abstain Sam, you have been looking through the document. Do you think that some of the criticisms that the Boris camp and Boris himself might have are fair? Yes, to, but, 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 but with a very big caveat in that 
it's quite difficult for Boris Johnson to be making these criticisms given that I think the consensus opinion is that if all of what Rishi Sunak has negotiated is properly implemented, is that it will be an improvement on the deal Boris Johnson himself signed. However, sort of leaving that to one side, I think it is important to acknowledge that the Windsor framework itself does not, for example, remove all issues, all differentiation between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. There are still controls in place. There are still new administrative requirements placed upon people moving products from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. There are still some things you can't do in Northern Ireland that you might be able to do in Great Britain. However, what is true is that it might be easier to do all of that stuff now. So, so yes, look, Boris was never going to be particularly gracious about this, I don't think, and he's raised perhaps some legitimate criticisms, but there still is the question of your benchmark. I mean, if your benchmark is Northern Ireland being treated exactly the same as the rest of the UK on everything, then this deal doesn't deliver. If you're, if you're sort of a bit more pragmatic and say, well, is, does it result in the terms of trade being better than they are now, then... So long as it's all implemented as they say it will be, then it probably is an improvement. And Sam, I wondered actually if, if I could ask you a question on this, which is one of the concerns. So when the ERG met um, on Tuesday night, quite split from what I've heard from some at the meeting in the sense that there were some, such as Bernard Jenkin, who were quite gloomy about the whole thing. And there were others, I think, which relates quite well to your benchmark comment. He said, well, it's an improvement on what we currently have. So it's hard to vote against. But on the Stormont break, um, that's that's one area where people don't like the difference between the UK text and the EU text. And they think that if you look at the EU text regarding it, it's a suggestion that it's only um, for the most extreme or rare of circumstances. And of course, the UK government has to say yes, as well as Stormont. How, how much do you think Brussels and I, so both the UK, think it's actually going to be used. <laughs> this is this is one of those difficult questions because we we got asked this a lot when it came to the trade and cooperation agreement and all of the dispute settlement processes there. How often are you going to actually see them used? I, I'm not sure. One thing I would say is that the UK command paper does make the point that the Stormont lock should be used for non-trivial purposes, which suggests and and it should be used only in instances where there is sort of a substantial change. So it's not it's not to be sort of called upon every time I don't know the most minor changes to to, to some sort of regulation happen. The UK government is probably just going to say, well, we're not really that bothered about that. So the EU side, of course, is saying, well, this won't be used very often. The UK is trying to big it up a bit more. I would say, in terms of the process, the thing to understand: the actual process behind the Stormont Lock is largely entirely up to the UK. In that, what we're talking about is the criteria by which the UK raises an objection with the European Union. The UK is saying, well, we will follow the outline set out in the Stormont Lock. If there's cross, if there's enough uh, MLPs who support, who, who, who object, we'll go through this, this process and then we'll raise it. The EU doesn't really have any say over that. That's entirely an internal UK government decision to make. So from an EU perspective, we can't even really comment on that. But on the EU side, they're having to their audience is different. They're trying to sell this to member states. There's always going to be a bit of a difference in tone and in emphasis because they want to say to member states, look, this is all done. 
it's over. We don't need to worry about this anymore. Whereas on the UK side, you're sort of saying, look, it's done. But if there are problems, we're going we're, we're gonna to go back out to bat for you. So some of that difference in emphasis, I think, is just to be expected and part of the sales process. And some of it might be a, to do slightly with interpretation, but also in terms of the storm on lock itself, at least the initiating of it, that's not really anything to do with the EU. That's a, that's, that's, that's a UK process. And Katie, looking at the DUP, there's quite a lot of mounting pressure for them to react. Do we have any idea of as to what their response might be? So I think there's a few things there. So first off, I think there can be a tendency in Westminster, I'm not saying I'm above this, to ultimately read the views of one DUMP as the views of the DUP. So for example... When this uh, was first unveiled on Monday, you had a situation where Sammy Wilson was going out. I was on Newsnight. He was also on Newsnight saying why he didn't think it would, you know, pass the test, being quite negative about it. You also had Ian Paisley Jr. earlier that evening making similar comments to GB News. But they're one, you know, just as we talk about the Tory party in terms of various factions, they're one faction of the DUP. And if you look at the comments of Gavin Robinson of the DUP in the initial commons debate uh, when Rishi Sunit was talking about, wasn't over the moon, but was much more constructive, suggesting, you know, ratification is very important. You also have Jeffrey Donaldson, who is uh, again saying, you know, we haven't quite decided yet. There are some good things. There are some things we're concerned about. And I think that therefore it's hard to say, are we actually going to get a DUP view, there are some in government who think what's more likely is a DUP could potentially never come to a, a verdict as a block. And instead you end up in a situation where they spend a lot of time thinking about it, perhaps thinking about it even when this vote happens. And then power sharing is restored on a different issue, perhaps a less contentious issue in the future. So I think when we're talking about the verdicts we're waiting on, we could get it, but I think it's a bit more complicated than we're about to have this big flashing lights moment where the DUP say yes or no and then Stormont uh, is restored. I don't think the choreography is going to be quite like that. So there are things that Downing Street can take encouragement from and there's things that they can be upset about in terms of uh, the reaction so far. But there is not any suggestion right now that this is coherent you know, no or yes. And I think that if you look at some former DUP figures, um, you know, again, a mix, but saying... Be careful here, because if you say no to this completely, what what do you think the alternative is? I think to Sam's point is a question: do you do you take it from the benchmark of improving the current situation in lots of practical ways, or do you take a slightly more absolutist position where you say, well, is not forgetting where we're coming from. We don't like what's being presented, and I think that's what it comes down to. And I think there's one other factor there, which is when it comes to restoring power sharing at Stormont, the protocol is not the only factor there you also have the situation that you know Sinn Féin is now the largest party and some of the DUP will not want to restore power while that's going on which makes it again a little bit less clear-cut. Sam do you see it in that case with this benchmark thing that the DUP are in a position where they might just have to compromise? It's very difficult for sort of someone not fully immersed in the politics of Northern Ireland to comment on what the DUP will do accurately I think just more generally, this benchmarking point is one I just keep coming back to because, you know, you have it on the sort of more Remainy side as well, where you have criticism, critics of this deal sort of saying, well, it doesn't deliver what not having Brexit would deliver, for example, in terms of Northern Ireland's place in the union. And 
if you know if that's your benchmark, you're just never going to be satisfied. And the alternative for the DUP and others is perhaps full UK single market integrity is upheld, but you have a border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, or you have controls there, or you have a trade war with the European Union, where the revealed preference of consecutive UK governments is that they don't want that. So I suppose a lot of what we're seeing play out in public now is people just wrestling with all of these different contradictions and just trying to work out not whether they will be happy, but whether they can be happy enough. Sam, just on that, I just wondered, one of the things Boris Johnson said today was this idea of returning to the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. And we heard the warnings in advance of Rishi Sunak's deal from Boris Johnson, which is the Northern Ireland Protocol would fix this. It's a mistake to take it off the table because it adds pressure during a negotiation. But also, it's a mistake because in of itself is a suggestion it would, it would get you somewhere. When we're talking about the DUP having to compromise, do you think that if you did have a prime minister that was willing to not agree this deal with Brussels and stick with the Northern Ireland Protocol, but that you'd potentially end up with a position they'd be happier with? Well, perhaps, but you sort of then have to play it through. So what would the Northern Ireland Protocol bill do if if, if sort of in, uh, brought into effect, it allow the UK to unilaterally override elements of the protocol, impose its own interpretation of how it should work in practice, some of which is slightly similar to what's been agreed under the, uh, under the Windsor framework. But also it would really, really annoy the European Union. So what would the European Union then do? It would perhaps suspend elements of the trade and cooperation agreement. You could see tariffs imposed on sensitive goods. You could see an entire breakdown in that relationship, which would have consequences for the whole UK, not just Northern Ireland. And I think throughout the entire Brexit process, we've seen that the revealed preference of of government is not to sort of go over the edge, is not to have a complete breakdown in relations with the European Union entirely. We've come close a few times, but we've always stepped back. We don't really want that trade war. So might going down that route satisfy the DUP? Yes. But is it sustainable? I don't think so, because I think we end up coming back to negotiations again and finding a compromise that is mutually at least tolerable to both the EU and the UK, which is probably not fully tolerable to the DUP because they're one voice in in, in, this, in in the context of a much, much wider discussion. Katie, lastly, we've just had some breaking news in that Sue Gray has resigned and she is going to be Chief of Staff to Keir Starmer. What's happening? Last night there was a report from Joe Pike from Sky News saying that Sue Gray was actually a front runner to be the new Chief of Staff for Keir Starmer. Now, as James Heal first reported um, before any other publication a few months ago, there was a preference in Labour to try and get a former civil servant um, to take this role because it would bring Whitehall expertise. Now, it turns out it wasn't a former civil servant. It's a civil servant they've made a former, um, in the sense that she obviously had to step down from her role. But I think after that report broke by Joe Pike last night, it was clearly not feasible for her to stay in her position if she actually wanted to take on the role. Where does this leave things? I think it's a very interesting appointment. My phone has had many flashing messages, I think just in the 15 minutes between it breaking and coming on this podcast. I think it's fair to say that she brings a wealth of experience as a senior civil servant across lots of different departments. And therefore, when uh, Labour's thinking about that return to power, you're going to have a situation by which I think she could be a very useful guide in terms of how the system works. They've been out of power for 13 years, so 
proper preparation is required if you want to win. That said, it's obviously a contentious appointment because Sue Gray was the person who uh, wrote the report on Partygate. There are lots of claims at the time that they felt like as though this was, you know, biased and lots of uh, Boris Johnson supporters questioned it. And I think people in government think Sue Gray did do a good job on this, but I think just the optics of someone who was in charge of an investigation, which wasn't the final uh, blow in terms of Boris Johnson's premiership, but was clearly a very large factor in it before eventually a row over Chris Pincher proved the, the last straw, is just going to add to the sense of that you had figures that weren't working uh, agenda. And I think that's that's what we're going to be seeing now in the coming days. Um, I think lots of people are very surprised. I think they've kept it very under wraps, this role. So figures in Whitehall are pretty stunned that she is going to go and do this. Um, so I think it is in some ways a smart point for Kirstama, but also contentious and could definitely play into a narrative that you had figures that with a political agenda within Whitehall. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Sam. And thanks for listening. <laughs>